0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is July the 11th, 2022, a week after Independence Day and Independence Day in the United States where I think Many people are rather pessimistic about the future of democracy. We've done so many shows on democracy, uh, most of which have been rather pessimistic, rather dark, but perhaps there's reason to be a little bit more cheerful. The news uh, today is that a, a UCLA law professor is launching an effort to protect the integrity of American elections Um, one of the most urgent issues apparently in uh, American political and legal life. UCLA School of Law Professor Richard Hassan has launched the Safeguarding Democracy uh, Initiative or Safeguarding Democracy Project. It's uh, a new initiative at UCLA. Uh, Rick uh, used to teach law at UC Irvine. He switched over to UCLA. He also came actually on my radar uh, late last month with a really interesting op-ed in the New York Times uh, arguing uh, that um, the Attorney General Merrick Garland should convene a grand jury now to look into the uh, criminal intent of Donald Trump in the uh, last election. Uh, Rick is also the author of Cheap Speech, a book that came out this year, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. It's a darker book, like so many of the other books written about the crisis of democracy in America. And I'm thrilled and honored that Rick is joining us from Los Angeles. Rick, welcome. Uh, Should we be cheerful about what you're trying to do with this new project? Tell me about it. What is Uh, What is this new initiative that you're starting at UCLA, Safeguarding Democracy Project?
1: Well, it's great to be with you and uh, optimistic or uh, cheerful are not words generally associated with the current state of American democracy. I guess I would prefer hopeful and determined. What the Safeguarding Democracy Project is trying to do is bring together leaders from across the political spectrum and across different disciplines to think about what we can do to strengthen American democracy and assure the continued uh, uh, peaceful transitions of power and assurance of free and fair elections. These are topics, frankly, I never expected to worry about in the United States. I mean, these were things that. Uh, when I was studying political science as an undergraduate or or problems in other countries, countries that were trying to transition to democracy. But the 2020 election showed us that our uh, electoral system and our democracy itself is much more fragile than people recognized, and that so much of the system by which we choose the president of the United States depends upon people acting in good faith rather than simply laws that must be followed. And so the Safeguarding Democracy Project is looking for ways to try to make it harder for elections to be stolen and easier for free and fair elections to take place and for people to accept those results as legitimate.
0: Rick, before we went live, we were sharing some notes. You were an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. When I was a graduate there, you were, you majored in Middle Eastern politics. You studied with somebody called Yaya Sadowski, who I taught for and did graduate school work with. He was an expert on state building in the Middle East or perhaps on the lack of state building. He had a particular interest in the confessional democratic system in Lebanon and quote unquote Lebanese democracy. Do you think in an odd kind of way, um, America is beginning to reflect the kinds of quasi democratic systems that exist in, in places like Lebanon or is that an uh, an inaccurate analogy to me
1: well i think it's it's somewhat different in that um, in Lebanon you know you're talking about people of different uh, religious and ethnic backgrounds who have very long histories of of being separated some of them have histories of being associated with other regions you know such as uh, Syria some of them have uh, religious motivations that are uh, tied to Iran. So uh, I don't think the analogy is, is quite that apt, but I do think that um, what the Lebanese experiment uh, with democracy shows is that uh, when you have institutions that are um, locked in place that don't match changes in politics and demographics, uh, you could well end up with a situation where uh, the political system comes under great stress. So in, in Lebanon, you know there was a rule that the the prime minister had to be a member of the Sunnis, and uh, you know different ministers had to be of different ethnic backgrounds. And this kind of power sharing arrangement got out of whack as populations changed, and it no longer reflected uh, proportional interests in society. I think you could say the same thing about the United States. We have a system designed of separation of powers where we expect the legislative branch to be a check on the executive, et cetera. Whereas today, as um, my colleagues, uh, Rick Pildes and Daryl Levinson uh, have recognized, we have separation of parties, not powers, right? The the primary dynamic in the country now is Democrat versus Republican, almost a, a kind of tribalism. And the kind of separated powers that we have in the United States don't lend themselves well to this. And so today, uh, it's very easy for the minority party to block the party that captures the presidency from being able to accomplish anything. That makes it harder for voters to judge whether the the candidates doing a good job. And, you know, this creates more tension uh, as, as there's more gridlock and as things don't get done. I I mean, I think that's part of the explanation for why Joe Biden's approval rating is so low is because he has relatively little power, despite the fact that he's chief of state of one of the most powerful countries in the world.
0: But Rich, going back to the the the, the the analogy, or perhaps even using Lebanon as a metaphor. Of course, America is not divided into Shia or Sunni, and, and, and the American state is historically much stronger than the Lebanese state. Um, but doesn't one thing that Lebanon and the US now share are groups of people who no longer share any kind of uh, ontological or epistemological certainty. They exist for one reason or another in entirely different universes when they think about the world and they think about truth and representation. So in an odd way, uh, America is becoming a kind of post-religious Lebanon, maybe, or or am I exaggerating that?
1: Well, I do think that there is a lack of of shared truth. Uh, This is much of what I write about in my uh, cheap speech book. Not only is there a ready supply of disinformation, uh, disinformation not just about elections and politics, well, that's the focus of my book, but disinformation about vaccines, disinformation about cultural issues, uh, but there's also uh, not just the supply, but a demand for this, uh, because it provides a kind of facile answer to sweeping social and demographic change in the united states uh, it's pretty clear that there are factions in the u.s that uh, have very different worldviews, very different understandings of about truth and when you have a system like that uh, it's it's very difficult to find common ground to get things done when you see every election as an existential struggle between good and evil, uh, it's very hard to find the, the, the well of goodwill that is necessary to keep a, a democracy going or even the kind of losers consent that we require for democracy. And by that, I just mean that uh, when someone's on the losing end of an election, they might grumble about it. They might not be happy about the results, but they agree that the election was fairly conducted and they will. Reorganizing,
0: yeah, and the <laughs> Lebanon. Uh, comparing with Lebanon is interesting as well because you always had, you always had, and have in Lebanon, the threat of violence lurking with the various kinds of militias. You have an increasingly militarized American society. Coming back to your uh, your interesting new book, "Cheap Speech: How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It." Do you think that that disinformation which is poisoning our politics, is as true on the left as on the right? Or is it really mostly uh, a problem within the Republican Party?
1: So I think problems with political disinformation exists on the left and the right. I don't think that it's symmetrical, though. It's a much larger problem on the right, uh, you know, as has been uh, measured by uh, other social scientists. Uh, I point especially to the work of uh, Yochai Benkler and his um, uh, co-authors at at Harvard University.
0: Hardly, Rick, the most reliable of people, politically, at least. I mean, I've had my fights with Benkler over the years. I mean, you would expect him to say that. He's a leftist, right?
1: Well, so uh, what we don't see on the left, but we do see on the right, is an ecosystem that has both a political and pecuniary motivation to spread disinformation So i was talking a minute ago about the the demand issue but the the supply issue is very serious remember in the period right after the 2020 election when it was clear that donald trump had lost but that but when he hadn't conceded and was still filing lawsuits he was able to raise a couple of hundred million dollars for supposedly for his uh, uh, litigation fund, but really most of it was for a kind of legal slush fund that the Federal Election Commission allows uh, candidates to set up. Uh, If you look at someone like um, Alex Jones of InfoWars, he's just made a tremendous amount of money selling products tangentially related to uh, the kind of do, do, uh, you have, do you have to expensive.
0: distinguish, Rick, though, between someone like Jones, who seems to be pretty much of a, a criminal and s- increasingly seen by the cro- courts to be one, and people who who are less criminal, less intent on simply raising money around lies that they know are lies?
1: Well, I mean, I think that most of the leaders who are... Um, Claiming, and let's just stick with the election fraud issues now. Most of the people who are claiming that the election was stolen, the elites, know full well that it was not, that the United States conducted what was probably the most watched and one of the fairest elections ever conducted in the United States under very difficult conditions of a pandemic. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can attribute good faith to the sydney powells or the donald trump juniors uh, or the alex jones i mean so i i don't know that i would draw such a distinction it was a very good study at um, uh, the stanford internet observatory about who's spreading the election lies and you know how they were spreading and it really was a core group of fewer than two dozen super spreaders of false information Uh, all of whom had political and financial reasons to be spreading these lies. Uh, Now, I think... Yeah, uh, no, I I I disagree
0: with that. And um, this was certainly supported, I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Bowden and Matt Teague's book, uh, The Steal, the Attempt to Overthrow the 2020 Election and the People Who Stopped It. Ironically, what Bowden and Teague show is some of the people who were most important in stopping uh, the... Uh, the the steal, the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election, were themselves Republicans. So it cuts across it cuts across political parties. I mean, not all Republicans are bent on cheap speech, are they?
1: Oh, absolutely not. And, you know, this is, I think, the uh, one of the building blocks for the new Safeguarding Democracy Project uh, is that it really took Republican heroes and Democratic heroes, but importantly, Republican heroes across the United States to prevent the theft of the 2020 election. So I think of someone like Brad Raffensperger, who was the Secretary of State of Georgia, who refused to quote, unquote, find 11,780 votes to try to flip the election results from Biden to Trump. Uh, You could think about judges appointed by um, Trump and other Republican presidents who, who refused to go along with attempts to manipulate uh, election outcomes. Uh, you could look at the legislators who are pressured by Trump, or Mike Pence, who was pressured by Trump to try to uh, do something to try to overturn the results. So it absolutely is not, and I don't mean to paint all Republicans with a broad brush, but I do think that this core of leadership that has been pushing this message has been able to convince the base of the Republican party that the 2020 election was stolen despite all reliable evidence to the contrary. And I'd point to a CNN poll from September about a year ago, where 59% of Republic self-identified Republican voters said they thought that believing the 2020 election was stolen was a key part of what it meant to be a Republican, right? Not low taxes, not a particular stand on immigration or defense. But this election lie kind of moving towards a cult of personality. And so I really think that we're at a crossroads in the Republican Party between those who are living in reality and accept the truth and those who are part of this great grift on the Republican Party base.
0: Rick, that grift that you, you, you call it a grift, is that a consequence of what you call cheap speech, um, the subtitle of the book, how disinformation points at, poisons our politics. I want to get to the cure later in our conversation. But what exactly is cheap speech? And, and, and why does it result in a dis, disinformation that's poisoning our politics? I know you've got a, a very intriguing notion of what uh, cheap speech is that you borrow from uh, another law
1: professor. Sure. My, my new colleague at, uh, at UCLA, Eugene Vollick wrote wrote an article back in 1995.
0: Very prominent early blogger
1: yes sure and still today quite prominent blogger and eugene uh you know talking about the coming internet social media revolution you know he could foresee things like social media and spotify and netflix and all the ways that we communicate and what he saw was that it was going to lead to a re- deterioration in the power of intermediaries like newspapers he thought this was going to be positive and democratizing and that democracy could flourish even without these intermediaries. And while I do concede and agree that cheap speech has done many good things, I mean, we literally have the knowledge of the world in the palm of our hands. Uh, It's very easy to share a video of police brutality and for people to organize a racial justice movement. There's a dark side too. Uh, As we've moved and changed the um, way in which we communicate, the economic model for producing things like quality journalism has collapsed, and especially when it comes to local media. And so I mean cheap speech in a a second sense of the term too, not just speech that is inexpensive to produce and disseminate, but also a system in which lower valued speech has an advantage in the political marketplace over higher valued speech. So I make the claim early on in the book that if we had the same polarized politics of uh, today, but the technology of the 1950s, it would have been much harder for the big lie to be able to spread. Donald Trump went to Twitter 400 times unmediated in the period between November 3rd and November 23rd, claiming the election was stolen. If he had to rely on Walter Cronkite and the New York Times and the local newspapers to be mediating that message and to be tra- you know, uh, trans- transferring it to the public, he would have had a much harder time. And of course, all of those criminals who organized to try to invade the Capitol and potentially capture or kill the leadership of Congress and the vice president, they were able to find themselves much easier, thanks to cheap speech. And so our current information environment, uh, and the current economics surrounding that information environment, make it much easier for false claims about elections to spread much harder for voters to get information they can trust about politics that they can use to make election related decisions.
0: Rick, you bring up Twitter, which, of course, is very much in the news now uh, because Elon Musk seems to be trying to get out of his deal to acquire it for, I think, 44 billion dollars. You're right, of course, that um, Trump used Twitter to spread what you would call misinformation. Some people might simply call them lies, propaganda. Um, Twitter allowed uh, Trump on during the election. After January 6th he got thrown off. One of the most interesting aspects of Musk's uh, Musk's vision of a, a better Twitter, a Twitter under musk was to allow Donald Trump to once again have a Twitter account. In your arguments in cheap speech should, Trump be allowed on Twitter? Should Twitter be allowed? Do there need to be laws about what Twitter can and can't publish? Or do there need to be more accountable laws within Twitter about whether or not propagandists like Trump should be allowed on the network?
1: So, one of the key issues that I grapple with in cheap speech is the difficulty, given today's technology in having a society with both a strong commitment to free speech and robust political debate, as well as one for free and fair elections. Because as you say, it's very easy to spread election lies and to undermine people's confidence in the fairness and integrity of the electoral process, which which itself can cause democracy to collapse. As, and so my view on, on the particular question about deplatforming and replatforming Donald Trump is that first and foremost, These companies are private actors, Uh, just like you can't tell the New York Times or Fox News, this is what you should cover. And this is how you should cover it. At least you can't in a a system that's committed to the the ideals of the first amendment, you can't tell Twitter that either. So I think um, contrary to the position of some of the ultra social conservatives on the Supreme court, um, but in line with what the Supreme court has said about free speech and about uh, media. I think that these companies should not be subject to regulation that would tell them what speech they must carry and, and shouldn't carry. That said, I think politically, it was the right decision for Twitter and Facebook to have removed Donald Trump because he had relentlessly uh, undermined the integrity of the election process. And he had called into question uh, you know, whether we were going to resolve the 2020 election by violence. Rather than through peaceful means, I actually think he should have been removed earlier. Once he started tweeting about those so-called wild um, protests that he wanted in Washington D.C., and you know, this is not just an academic question. Even assuming that Elon Musk does not carry out his say his purchase of, of Twitter under Facebook's own rules, they referred the question of Donald Trump's deplatforming to their oversight board kind of the supreme court of, of facebook and facebook uh now has to decide january seventh, twenty 2023 is donald trump still a threat to democracy if he is he stays off if he's not he's put back on and, and if he of course is a candidate for political office as it looks like he's going to be uh, there's going to be tremendous pressure to restore him to the platform i think that would be a mistake i think there should be a huge thumb on the scale against excluding politicians for political reasons but once they cross the line into relentless efforts to undermine election integrity and to promote violence uh, they've crossed that line and, and 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 private companies should exclude them
0: why just that ele- uh, elect this is such a complicated and interesting issue rick but why why just election integrity. There are so many other issues. What about abortion, for example, or firearms? I mean, some people might suggest that right to bear arms and and those issues or the woman's right to abortion or foreign policy issues, whether America should be involved in a war in Ukraine. At what point does Twitter simply become a place where you can't say anything firstly? Then secondly, are you suggesting that and is it just Trump because of his 80 or 90 million followers who should be banned from Twitter. Should anyone be thrown off Twitter if they claim that the last election was a fake, a
1: fraud? So first of all, let me emphasize that these are private companies and they can make whatever decisions they want. And if Donald Trump wants to spread his election lies, he's got Truth Social, he's got other platforms, he's got Rumble, he's got plenty of places he can go. But I think responsible corporate citizens, just like A responsible corporate newspaper or responsible corporate company uh, that's running any kind of business does not need to carry speech that undermines the electoral process i think the electoral process is unique back in the 1800s the supreme court decided a case called yikuo versus hopkins where the court said that voting rights are so important because they're preservative of all other rights that is you can't debate things like abortion or the environment or immigration if you don't have a fair election system where people can freely participate in the process and and elect their candidates of choice and so i think that undermining election integrity is a uniquely destabilizing thing again i'm not saying there should be a law that says donald trump may not say x i'm saying that responsible companies do not need to be part of the process and yeah i would draw a distinction and say it's not every average person who's putting out their uh, some election lie, but it's the leaders. It's the ones who have the millions of followers who are doing the most damage to the system, who should be the ones that are policed privately by these companies.
0: Rick, there's always been cheap speech, but of course, as as you know, and as many others know, it was always confined to the pub or the living room today. Now it's distributed, uh, on our global network. We had John Rausch on the show, my old friend. Sure, you're familiar with his book, "A Constitution of Knowledge: A Defense of Truth." Do you think this crisis of truth is only connected with the internet, or are there other reasons why we have cheap speech, disinformation, the um, the the, uh, the hunting intellectually of truth by men like Donald Trump?
1: Well, you're certainly true that there have been lies uh, for as long as people have been speaking and there have been demagogues well before the rise of the internet. But I do think that the internet, through its uh, ability to uh, disseminate without uh, any kind of check uh, and the ability of false claims to uh, get viral and... uh, not be subject to any kind of meaningful fact checking. I think that these changes really have um, accelerated the force of disinformation, and we're in a uniquely difficult position because at the same time that uh, we're uh, going through this major technological change, where it's very difficult for truth to emerge, you know, in a in a marketplace of ideas, to use the, the Supreme Court's. I think, inapt, but but common metaphor. At the same time that's happening, there's also this incredible polarization in society. So if we had tamer politics, then this disinformation probably wouldn't but It seems matter. like
0: that. The, the cause and effect of these two things are, are so entangled, it's hard to put one before the other. You know, I, I, I cited at the beginning your op-ed in the New York Times, No One is Above the Law, and that starts with Donald Trump in the New York Times. I'm sure that was very carefully re- curated because the lawyers at the Times didn't want to be sued. Why? Why shouldn't the platforms, the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the TikToks of the world, why shouldn't they simply be as legally accountable as a newspaper? And wouldn't that just fix the problem? Why why, why is the problem not the one of safe, safe harbor, which Congress, for one reason or other, gave to the platforms in the 1990s?
1: right so now you're talking about section 230 of the communications decency Act, yes. which among other things uh says that platforms can't be liable for either including content or excluding content uh you know subjects to some very narrow exceptions if you subjected social media companies to the normal rules of defamation where you know if the new york times publishes a defamatory op-ed they can be sued uh, and, and uh, you know, we, we, we saw that with the, the Sarah Palin lawsuit against The Times for a, for a New York Times editorial. It is just impossible to curate content at scale if you're one of these social media companies. You're dealing with hundreds of millions of pieces of content every day. And, you know, they can't go through the kind of vetting that it is. That's the people. kind of
0: argument that one of their lawyers would make. Someone might say, well... You're just gonna to have to shut down if, if you're not able to operate a business under the law, then that's just unfortunate.
1: Sure. But then, you know, then you lose the the benefits of the cheap speech world, which is that, you know, 40 years ago, if you didn't like something that was in the New York Times, you could tell your buddy at the bar, you could write a letter to the editor, but you couldn't share that information. And so to the extent that we do think that valuable information should be out there and to the extent that we think that the First Amendment should protect people's autonomy and their ability to express themselves in ways that uh, uh, reflect what they believe, well, then you know, you'd lose a lot. You know, we could have such a regime, and I, I don't think that these companies have a constitutional right to be free from the defamation laws. I just think that given the kind of freedom that the public uh, has come to expect that it would profoundly change the balance in terms of speech if we did change that particular aspect of the law and uh, you know i don't know that people want to go back to that again we have a commitment to really robust and wide open debate but also one of free and fair elections and much of what i try and do near the end of cheap speech is talk about how we could balance these things
0: yeah, and that's without, what I want to get right? I, I want to uh, focus on your fixes here. <laughs> are the fixes, um, Rick, are they mostly bound up in law? You, 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 you've, you've, you've been involved in some interesting conversations about cheap, cheap speech and the Supreme Court um, changes and uh, cases are, are, are on speech. Do we need new laws, amendments, even to the Constitution? given these new technologies, these new realities, for better or worse?
1: I do think that there are some changes in law that would be helpful. For example, uh, one of the technological changes that we're seeing are the ability to create so-called deep fakes. These are manipulated audio or video that could make a politician look like she's uh, having a heart attack or saying a racial epithet. I think we could have a law that would require that these deep fakes be labeled as altered so people would know that they can't believe their eyes. Uh, I also think we could have a very narrow law that would make it a crime to lie about when, where, or how people vote. Uh, We had someone in the 2016 election who's currently being prosecuted for lying and telling people they could vote by text message or social media hashtag. That could actually disenfranchise people. That won't deal with the problems of lying about the last election, the issue we talked about earlier. But some of these legal changes could help. But I think much of what we need to do, given our twin commitments to free speech and to democracy requires uh, methods that are not laws, but uh, instead voluntary actions. So for example, I think that journalists should be able to come together, come up with a code of ethics and a code of responsible practices, and then give a seal of approval to those news organizations that follow those practices. So for example, you are the Los Angeles Times and you agree You're not going to print something without giving the person you're talking about a chance to respond. You're always going to rely on two sources, et cetera. You get that good housekeeping seal of approval. And then that little seal of approval could be used on social media by the social media companies to signal, okay, this is a a post in Los Angeles Times. They might not always get it right, but they've agreed to abide by these rules. I think that could help. And you know, if we have a discussion about whether Breitbart is entitled to get the seal of approval or not. I think that discussion itself would be healthy for democracy because it would help us to understand what is it that journalists do to try to assure that they are promoting the truth. Uh, but you know, who's
0: going to determine, Rick, whether Breitbart gets the seal of approval or Fox News or right? It's going to be uh, or or or, uh, or Jacobin magazine. I mean, that's another can of worms, isn't it?
1: Again, it's not government. It was to be journalistic societies, and people can disagree. And that very debate about what journalists do and how you can figure out the truth, I think that would be very useful.
0: What about education? I had uh, Bernard Perkin on the show, German scholar, talking about editorial society, dealing with the same stuff you're dealing with and everybody else. He has a new book out, Digital Fever, taming the big business of disinformation. He thinks that journalists need to go into schools rather than making laws about which publications people should rely on and trust and others, they should go into schools and teach young people the business, if you like, not the business, not the commercial business, but the cultural business of misinformation. And that the problem is not lying online, the problem are the people who are tricked into believing that these lies are truths. Do we need to fundamentally look at our education system too, Ray?
1: Sure. I mean, But, uh, that's a very long term project. And I don't know that we can last that long. I also think that much of the problem with disinformation, according to the social science evidence I've seen is with older Americans, not with younger Americans, younger Americans tend to discount everything and and believe everything is false and that creates its own set of problems a kind of market for lemons problem that I talk about in, in the book. Uh, but for older, older Americans are more likely to be the ones to spread disinformation because. I think they're more likely to believe that what they see is true, because they grew up in an era when journalists could be trusted more, or at least those who purport to be journalists could be trusted more. Sure, education is part of that, too, as is um, trying to pressure uh, all of the different um, institutions in our society to do the right thing, whether that is uh, Twitter and Facebook, whether that is the judiciary. Uh, whether that's the, the FBI, uh, academic institutions, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment to try to uh, muster our resources to assure continued free and fair elections uh, uh, under conditions that are quite difficult given the flood of disinformation about elections and integrity.
0: Final question, Rick. I know you got to run. Um, I bumped into Moises Naim, who written a great deal about this subject as well in Munich last month. We had breakfast together and he told me rather sadly, he said that he expects Trump to win the 2024 election. I, I don't want to ask you that question, but how critical do you think the next election is in terms of cheap speech and our crisis of disinformation?
1: I think the 2024 elections are, are crucial. I mean, you said the next election. I don't think you're talking about the midterms, but the next presidential. Well,
0: and I guess the midterms as well are important in 2022.
1: Well, they're most important because there are some people who are election deniers who are running for office, who are going to be put in place to run the 2024 elections. I really think, you know, the the country is at a knife's edge and and whether we can survive the 2024 elections uh, as a, as a continued vibrant democracy is something that is very much an open question. Uh, But, you know, I I say that not to cause fear and complacency, but instead as a call for action. And and that's really what I'm trying to do is muster up forces to try to preserve American democracy while we still can.
0: Well, that's anything, Rick, but cheap speech. Um, Even though you just wrote a book called Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on your... Your new project, Safeguarding Democracy at UCLA, as well as your new role at UCLA Law School, you're going to be more and more important, I think, in this conversation, which, for better or worse, isn't going away. What else are you reading these days, Rick, to keep you informed and entertained about the world?
1: Well, I've got the Steel, which you just um, oh uh, nice on, on my show. That's the next That's a good one. book, isn't
0: it? Those guys are great. Yeah. If you haven't seen the interview, you should look at it.
1: Yes, and uh, uh, just completed uh, Miles Rappaport and EJ, EJ Dion's uh, book, uh Hundred Percent Democracy," which makes the case for compulsory voting in the United States, which is something that I've long, you know, thought thought is a is is w- would solve a lot of the problems uh, in the United States in terms of registration and getting out the vote.